Our reading this morning is from Luke 8, verses 40 56. Um, we read scripture every Sunday. It is central to everything that we do here, and it's how God reveals himself to us. Um, so let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read it this morning. We thank you that Andrea is here to preach it. Lord, I pray that you will settle his heart and his mind as he comes to teach your word to us, Lord. Let us have ears open to hear your word. Let us walk out of here today with something to take into our lives from your word that we can put into practice for us. Lord, speak to us. Amen. Thank you, Claire. Uh, we're uh, working our way through the book of Luke. The book of Luke, Luke's gospel, this account of uh, Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, and we're at this stage, uh, we're, I mean, we're not even halfway through, but we're at the stage in, in this account of Jesus' life where he's uh, going through the, the, the villages and the towns and the cities, uh, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And he has started by... Um, he started out by, by, uh, by using his words, by telling about the kingdom of God, by saying this is what the kingdom is like. And then he has now moved into this. Uh, in chapter 8, we see him demonstrating what the kingdom is like and demonstrating his power and authority uh, through his actions. And so uh, we saw that he, he demonstrates his power over the natural world, right? He speaks to the, the storm, and it just calms, right? Jesus has absolute authority over the natural world. And then he shows his power over the, the spiritual world, over the supernatural world, um, what we saw last Sunday where he speaks to the, the demons and they just obey him. 
He has absolute authority over the spiritual realm. And then today, the third and final episode of chapter 8, Jesus demonstrates his power and authority over the, the, the realm of death, of sickness and death. And in many ways, if you think about it, this is like three, the, the three kind of greatest fears and needs of, of humanity, isn't it? The natural world. We're, I mean, we're completely, even now in, in modern times, we're completely helpless over the natural world. You think of like tsunamis or you think of hurricanes, whatever it may be, like we're com- completely helpless in the face of these things. The, the spiritual realm, the, the supernatural world that we, we, Travis taught us last week about the demonic, like we're completely helpless in the face of these things. And the other thing that we are, that, that comes to us all, death, like we're completely helpless in the face of this thing. It's, it's almost our, uh, I, I, later on I'm going to call it our worst inevitability. It's inevitable, and it's the worst thing that can happen to us. Um, but Jesus, I want us to see this morning, is not just demonstrating that he has power and authority over these things. He's also showing through these three kind of things that he uses his power and authority to defeat these things for our benefit. It's not just that he wants to show, look, I'm all powerful over these things. He actually wants to show, no, I, I, I'm going to use my power and my authority for your good. That's what he is about. That's what he is doing this morning. I'm going to pray for us very quickly again uh, because I feel like I need it. Um, and then we'll get stuck into this passage. Uh, Father, I just want to ask for your help now. Give me clarity of thought and, and clarity of words. Would you speak to us um, as your children this morning um, through me, um, through your spirit working on our hearts? Would you do that for us? Give us ears to hear you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I don't know, if you maybe saw this video earlier this year that was circulating online uh, of a, a guy called Francis Zuber. And Francis Zuber was skiing down uh, the slopes of Mount Baker in Washington State, which is a pretty famous skiing place. And uh, he happened to, he's wearing a GoPro, so this is all recorded, and he happens to lose control and he goes off piste and he ends up stuck in uh, a snowdrift. Uh, sometimes these are called tree wells, where it's the, the snow gathers around uh, the, uh, a tree and creates a big, deep drift. And so he's trying to get himself out, and then he looks over and he notices there's a snowboard sticking out of the snow. And he thinks, that's a bit odd. And then all of a sudden, he sees the snowboard moving. He realizes the snowboard's moving. And so he realizes that there's somebody buried upside down in the snow drift, and they can't get out. And so Francis Zuber works quickly. He takes off his skis, and so he clambers over to the guy, and he starts digging him out with his hands. He's digging him out. And then uh, he, he finally gets his shovel. He has a shovel, I guess, because he's a pretty you know, well-prepared guy. Um, and that helps him dig faster. And then in the video, it's really quite, I don't know, it's quite moving, because you know this guy's in a lot of trouble. And he, he's calling out. He's saying, hold on, I'm coming. Hey, are you all right? I'm coming. Can you hear me? And then he gets his this snowboarder's arm comes free, and he says, right, come on, help me out. You've got to help me. Are you okay? And then when he finally uncovers this guy's helmet, he goes with relief. He says, okay, you're good. You're good. I've got you. Are you okay? Can you breathe? And then you can kind of in the video hear the, the snowboarder saying, yeah. <laughs> That's what he says, yeah. And then he says, okay, what we're going to do is we're just going to catch our breath, and then I'm going to dig you out. And all you can hear is this faint voice from the snowboarder saying, Thank you. Like he's, he's moments away from, from suffocating to death. Now, your man, Zuber, didn't, he didn't set out to be a hero that day. He was just out for a good time. Uh, uh, but there is no doubt that if he hadn't come along at the right time, if he hadn't had the accident of, fall, like, of tumbling off the ski slope, that snowboarder would have died. 
There is there was zero hope for him. I definitely recommend that you go and find out. It's on his Instagram. It's really incredible. But imagine being that snowboarder. Imagine being the guy who's stuck upside down in the dark, in the freezing cold, suffocating to death. How, terif- how terrified would, would that be? Like how, how hopeless would you feel? Just the thought of that kind of makes me feel really uncomfortable. Now, maybe you've never been trapped in an upside down in a snowdrift. Maybe you have, I don't know. But I, I doubt it. But I'm pretty sure that we've all had moments in our lives where we haven't been able to see a way out, right? Maybe it's a situation that seems hopeless, so maybe you've had no money in the bank and you have to get your car fixed or pay your rent. Or maybe it's it's a relative or a loved one who's who's got uh, who's just received a terminal diagnosis. Or maybe it's it's even just smaller things that you just can't see any way this is going to change or any way out. And or maybe it's just like even me this week, just considering how hopeless you are spiritually. And so what I want us to do this morning is to get us to consider when all hope is lost, where where do we go? Who do we turn to when there is nobody to turn to? Who do we turn to when all hope is lost? And this is the situation that Jairus found himself in when he came to Jesus. His little girl was dying. Who was he going to turn to? This this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, uh, she couldn't be healed by anyone, verse 43 tells us. A, A hopeless situation, so who is she going to turn to? And 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 listen, all sickness and death in, in this passage are, are just reminders, are just symptoms of our spiritual sickness and death. The fact that, that people get sick and die is an indication of our even greater hopelessness. Without a rescuer, without someone to come along with hope, we're all just that snowboarder stuck upside down in a snowdrift. We're all dying little girls. We're all the woman who's bleeding for years. Without a rescuer, we are hopeless. So where do we go when all hope is lost? And here's what I want us to see in our passage this morning. This passage shows us, I believe, that Jesus is our only hope in life and death. So we must trust him. Jesus is our only hope in life and death. So we must trust him. And it's not just an option to trust Jesus. This passage shows us that there is literally nothing or nobody else who can bring us hope. Only Jesus can undo death, right? Only Jesus can bring wholeness and healing. He isn't one option out of a few. He's the only option. And so we must trust him. And firstly, we, need to trust, we can trust Jesus in our despair and make him the object of our faith. We can trust Jesus in despair. A few times this week, uh, maybe especially because Haley's away in Paris with the girls and uh, because I spent more time than I normally do with the kids. I'm not normally like a 1950s dad in my study or whatever. I'm, I'm, I am a present father, but I've had more time with the kids this weekend. And I'm just trying to think, what would Jairus have been feeling? Can you imagine that? Like, this is the scariest thing for a parent. Like the thought of my child is dying. And some of you in this room have experienced that. I have tried to imagine the despair he must have felt. 
So in his despair, he comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus because nobody else can help. He's he's obviously heard of Jesus' power. He's seen his miracles. Maybe he's heard the story of him casting out the the demons of of the man who no one else could help. Maybe he's heard of him calming the storm. He comes to Jesus because there is nobody else to, to go. There is nobody else who can do anything. And see, there's a lesson for us to learn from this man. Because I'm pretty sure his, his faith may have been imperfect, but his faith was in the right person. And this is the, this is the, the point I want us to learn from, from this first part of this story, is that his faith may be imperfect, but it's in the right person. You see, Jairus was a Jewish leader. And first of all, that'd be really weird for him to come to Jesus because think of all the opposition from the Jewish leaders that was actually against Jesus. Jairus didn't know all the ins and outs of of kingdom theology. He didn't have a full understanding of who Jesus was or what he was doing in the world or his great plan of redemption and salvation. But he just trusted that somehow Jesus could meet his need. The most simple form of faith His faith was valid, not because of his theology, but because Jesus was the object of his faith. His faith was sufficient because his faith was in Jesus. His faith was sufficient because his faith was in Jesus. It's not the quality of of our faith. It's the object of our faith that is important. Look at the way he comes to Jesus in verse 41. It says, And falling at Jesus' Feet, he implored him to come to his house. He comes in, in desperation, falling at his feet. His little girl is dying and there's nothing he can do. And so he, he throws himself at Jesus' feet. This is a sign of absolute desperation, absolute neediness, absolute despair. He, he, he throws aside his dignity. He's a community leader. And he just says, I'm falling at your feet, Jesus. Have mercy. Come and, come and do something. My little girl is dying. I need you. Now, that sounds like saving faith, doesn't it? His faith may have been imperfect, but it was in the right person. And listen, if we are to have any hope, our faith must be in Jesus. It's not enough to be a person of faith. This is something you hear a lot of, even like when you talk about famous people or whatever, oh yeah, they're a person of faith, oh, they're a real person of faith. But what does that mean? Who or what is your faith in? Our only hope is to come to Jesus the way Jairus does, falling on his mercy, imploring him to help us. Our relationship with Jesus is one of complete dependency because he is the only dependable one and we are completely needy, right? And so this makes me think, like, how do we pray? Do we pray like this man? When the darkness is closing in, when life is so tough and we can't see any hope of it ever getting better, Maybe you're in that situation right now. You're like, this is crazy and I can't see any way of it changing. Well, then the the lesson here is to to throw yourself on Jesus, to to trust in him because he is is the only possible hope. Imagine the snowboarder is upside down in the snowdrift and the guy digs him out and he's like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I I think I'll put my trust in another rescuer. Wow. And the thing is, we can trust Jesus because he is dependable. Look at how Jesus responds to Jairus' plea for help. What does he do? He goes. He responds. 
He acts. The man cries out to Jesus for help. Jesus, I need your help. And Jesus says, right, I'm coming. This is the same Jesus that we have. He responds to our plea for help. In despair, we can tr- just trusting in him. He moves towards us. He acts. Saving faith is faith that is placed in Jesus. So that's the first thing. We need to trust Jesus in despair. He, he needs to be the object of our faith. But the second thing that we see from, from this uh, episode of Jesus' life is that we, we can trust Jesus in our desolation. He is our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. As Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, um, he's surrounded by the crowd. Because this guy, I mean, he's doing some pretty impressive stuff. And the crowd want to see him. The crowd are like, what is going on? Could this person be the Messiah? Maybe. And this is where he meets the woman of the story. And we're told that this woman has been suffering from bleeding, a chronic condition that's been going on for 12 years. A long, long time. Interestingly, the same age as Jairus' little girl who is dying. And her situation is dire, right? And, and, and her, her situation, we need to consider her context. Because apart from the physical discomfort and maybe pain she was suffering, that this condition had ruined her life. Firstly, she was unclean. According to the ceremonial law, she was, because she was bleeding, she would have been seen as unclean and therefore unable to take part in temple worship. And so, therefore, cut off from the community and therefore cut off from God. She would have been outcast because of her uncleanness and most likely no man would have wanted to marry her. And having children would probably be impossible, all of which in that culture was a source of great shame. She's got shame heaped on her. She's unclean. And on top of this, she has spent all of her money on doctors, but nobody has been able to help her. She's got no money left. She's poor. So think of this woman's desolate situation. Unclean, cut off, poor, shamed. Completely hopeless. Now please don't think that uh, Luke, even though he was a doctor, uh, is, is, is using this story as a commentary about women's health issues. This is not the point. The point is about Jesus and how he meets us in our hopelessness, in our neediness. You see, we are all the woman in the story, right? Without a savior, we are in desolation, unclean, not because of, of, of bleeding, but because of our sin, and, and therefore unable to be in the presence of a holy God. You see, the law made this woman unclean. But Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that we are all unclean. And that all our good deeds are like filthy rags. Because our, our righteousness are like stained rags. And then before a holy God, whatever righteousness, whatever good deeds we think we can muster up, are literally like monthly rags. And a woman... Just like the woman, we are also cut off, cut off from, from God because of our sin, with nothing but imperfect and broken relationships. And we're poor, not in a financial sense, um, but in the spiritual sense, spiritually bankrupt, with an infinite debt that we have no hope of ever paying. This is who we are without a Savior. We are this woman in this story. 
And so when we read this story, we don't try to make a comment about this woman. No, we, we, we see that we are the woman. Unclean, cut off, poor, ashamed, desolate. But look what happens next. I think reading this became one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. But anyway, um, I say that almost every week. I'll, I'll give you that. Um, you see, because of her shame, she doesn't want to announce to Jesus publicly, right? She doesn't want to, you know, she's not doing a Zacchaeus who's climbing up a tree. She's not like the Pharisees come and, and confront him. This poor woman is, is so ashamed and she doesn't need her very personal problem to be broadcast, but she knows. Her faith tells her, listen, if I can just touch him, I know he can heal me. And just like Jairus, her faith not, may not be perfect or fully formed, but it is in the right person, right? And so she pushes through the crowd and, and reaches out and just touches the fringe of his robe. Probably, if you read the Old Testament, it's probably tassels on his uh, robe. And immediately, immediately, he's healed. She could feel it. She knows that she has been healed. And Jesus did for this woman in an instant what no man could do for her in 12 years. Through a touch. Through a, a simple a simple. Believing touch. The whole crowd was touching Jesus, but she was the only one who touched him in faith. Now let's think about this deeper for a little second, because in the eyes of the Jewish laws, as we saw, this woman was ceremonially unclean, right? And because of this, anyone she came in contact with would have been rendered unclean. And unless, or sorry, her uncleanness should have defiled Jesus. This isn't what happens, is it? It's the opposite that happens. When she touches Jesus, his cleanness passes to her and makes her clean, and Jesus remains undefiled. Isn't that beautiful? The law made her unclean, but in an instant, Jesus made her clean, and Jesus remains completely undefiled. And I love that it tells us that Jesus could feel the healing power leaving him. And so he asks, who touched me? And Peter, of course it's Peter. Um, he's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? There's like a hundred people pushing all around you. Everybody's touching you. But Jesus wants to find this woman. Of course he knows who has touched him. I don't even know why. I read a lot about how theologians debate why Jesus asked this question. Anyway, of course Jesus knows who touched him. He doesn't need to ask, but he wants to ask because he's not finished with this woman yet. He has far more than physical healing to give her. Jesus is interested more in her, is interested in more than just this physical and, and temporal complaint. As dire as that was for her, he is interested in far more. And he, he wants to display to this woman and to the crowd what his kingdom is really all about. This poor woman is is carrying so much shame that she had hoped to slip in and out unnoticed. But then Jesus calls her forward. And verse 47 tells us that she realizes she's no longer hidden. The crowd had maybe stepped back a little bit. It was obviously you. And so she comes forward trembling. I love this woman's faith because it feels so much like mine sometimes. Trembling faith. Timid faith. Just touch the, the, the fringe of his garment faith. And then she falls down before him, just like Jairus, in an act of desperation, in an act of devotion. 
and declares, probably through tears, certainly trembling, how Jesus had healed her. And then Jesus, in verse 48, says the most extraordinary thing to her. Look what he says. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus calls her daughter. Can you, can you imagine what this meant for this woman? Like her, her previous identity was outcast, desolate, unclean. And now she is a daughter of heaven. Jesus does far more than restore her body. He restores her dignity. He says in front of everybody, this woman you're all calling unclean, she is my daughter. <laughs> this is what Jesus does. You see, the world may have rejected her and heaped shame on her, but, but Jesus brings her into his very own family and, and heaps not shame on her, but heaps dignity and honor on her. Sisters, if I may just talk to you for a second, you are daughters of heaven. Brothers, these women all around you are daughters of heaven, so we better not dare dishonor them. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus heaps honor on his daughters. The biggest conversation in society at the minute is around identity, isn't it? We hear it every day. We read it every day. We're thinking about it every day. The questions of what defines me? Who gets to decide who I am? What uh, that decides who I am. How do I figure out who I am? Where do I belong? And listen, if, if, if you are trying to find your place in the world, if you're trying to figure out your identity or searching for security, then look to Jesus because look what he does. Put your trust in him because if Jesus calls you daughter, your search is over. If Jesus calls you son, your search is over. And notice what else Jesus says to this woman. He says, now he's just say, daughter, <laughs> which is huge. He says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Faith, salvation, peace. Now, the woman that described her healing, whenever she's describing what Jesus has done, she describes it in physical terms, but Jesus doesn't do this. The word that Jesus uses here for healing is the same word that's used for spiritual healing in almost every other context. It's due to this complete healing. It's spiritual. It's the same word that is used for salvation. Jesus is saying, I have done far more for you, daughter. Jesus has said, your faith has saved you. Clearly, something deeper than physical healing has taken place here. And then he tells her to go in peace, to go in shalom. We don't have time to do word studies and all these kinds of things, but, but shalom, this peace, is the promise that comes with, with Jesus and his kingdom. It's wholeness, it's reconciliation, it's restoration. He comes to Jesus for healing. Boy, does Jesus heal her, doesn't he? Her faith in Jesus saves her and not just makes her physically well, but brings her shalom and wholeness. Think of the change that would have happened in this woman's life from now on. In, in Jesus, she gets more than she could have ever hoped for. He heals her. He makes her clean. He restores her dignity. He saves her. He makes her his daughter. Church, this is a, a picture of what the Lord Jesus does for all of us when we come to him in faith. Jesus makes us clean. He takes our uncleanness and we get his cleanness in exchange. 
So that when, even in the middle of me committing the worst sins that I do in my life, when God looks at me, he sees the cleanness of Jesus. Jesus brings us shalom. We were cut off from God, but he reconciles us to God. Brings us into a family where we can experience real, unbroken relationship. And he takes on our shame. And in exchange, we get the honor and dignity of being called a child of God. Why are we, why are we not celebrating all the time? Why are we not partying all the time and telling people how good this is? And seriously, why are we not out in the streets telling people this all the time? He takes our poverty, our unpayable debt, and in exchange, we get the riches of heaven. Every, uh, an old theologian that I like, John Calvin, he says this, that every spiritual blessing of Christ is now ours. Every spiritual blessing that belongs to Jesus is now ours. And all we have to do is reach out like that woman and touch him. Because what Jesus did for that woman, he does for us, right? In fact, just like he was for the woman, he is our only hope. There's a small detail in here that I think I mentioned, but I'll just mention it again. Um, it's, right, it's right at the start. Um, verse 43. And, and uh, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Why do we spend all our money looking for salvation and all our things? Honestly, like why, why, do we, why do we try to find satisfaction, belonging, identity, security, salvation in all these other things? Why do we do it? Only Jesus can, can give us the true wholeness and belonging and healing and salvation like he did for this woman. Isaiah 55 um, says, I almost said it's one of my favorite passages, but I'm not going to because I said that about every passage in the Bible. Um, this is what it says, Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat, right? It's a free shop. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? And then it says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me and come to me here that your soul may live. In other words, stop wasting your time and money and efforts and energy looking for satisfaction and wholeness and healing and other things. Because in Jesus, we find all these things and it's free. We can trust Jesus in our desolation because he is our only hope. He brings us this new identity and salvation and, and wholeness and belonging. So we trust Jesus in our despair. We trust Jesus in our desolation. And finally then, we can trust Jesus in death because he undoes our worst inevitability. Trust Jesus in death because he undoes our worst inevitability. So by this point in the story, <laughs> we've almost forgotten about poor Jairus and his daughter. By the way, uh, the, the head in your Bible says Jesus heals a woman and Jairus' daughter. Uh, I, I want to change that. I want to change that Jesus heals two daughters. <laughs> anyway, that's just a little side note. 
Now, imagine Jairus in this situation. He's been so desperate. He's fallen down at Jesus. He says, can you come and heal? And then on the way, Jesus stops with this woman. And it's not that she wasn't important, but I think if I was Jairus and my little girl was dying, I would be pretty frustrated because that the woman's problem, although it was horrible, it wasn't urgent, right? Jesus could have said, hey, just wait here for 10 minutes. I'm going to nip down the road, heal this little girl, then I'm going to come back to you or, or come with me and, and, we'll, and we'll do this on the way. He doesn't do that. And Jairus, I imagine, must have been pretty frustrated. Come on, Jesus, my wee girl is dying here. And this is what we do, isn't it? <laughs> we want God to do what we think he should do, and we want him to do it right now. But Jesus is about to learn that God's timing is never wrong, even if we can't see that to begin with. Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, which seems like foolishness in this moment, lets the trauma get worse. He allows this little girl to die. His timing must have seemed wrong, but Jesus is about to get even more glory. And this little girl is about to get an even greater healing. And Jairus is about to, to get an even greater lesson in faith, right? You see, the, the, the truth is that sometimes Jesus lets us go through even deeper pain, more desperate situations, so that he will get even greater glory, so that our healing will be even greater, so that our faith in him grows even more, so that he becomes bigger in our sight. And so when it feels like we can't go on, when the reality, the reality of the little girl's dead, the reality of your pain is just getting worse and worse. In those moments, we, we can trust that God is working an even bigger, bigger solution, an even bigger uh, miracle, an even bigger healing so that our faith is increased and so that he gets even more glory. There is a reason for our suffering, and that reason is our good and his glory. Here's a verse that I think is often quoted, but it makes a lot of sense. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The truth of that, what Paul is saying to the Roman church here is that the all things work together for the good of those who love God. And that includes our hardship, that includes our suffering, that includes our trauma, that includes our pain. All these things are working together for our good. And so we can be assured, just like Jairus was here, that in your suffering, God will be glorified and it will be for your good. And I know that that's hard because it's one thing to trust Jesus when the little girl is dying. Another thing entirely to trust him when she's dead, right? It's one thing to trust Jesus when the situation is desperate, but it's another thing to trust him when it's completely hopeless. But Jesus always exceeds our expectations. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us far more abundantly than all we ask or even think about. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like what God is doing is just outside our, our, our way of thinking. We can't even think. The scope of what we think God is doing is so narrow and so small compared with what he is actually doing, the good he is working for us, the glory he will receive. And maybe 
for you, it feels a little bit like Jairus. The situation has gone from, from desperate to hopeless. But Jesus is always on time. God's timing is always perfect so that he is glorified and we get the most good. So we can hang in there. We can trust him. He is working. He is working for your good and for his glory. Now when the, the, the servants from the, or the, they, they come from Jairus' house and, and they tell him that the little girl is dead, Jesus offers Jairus a command and a promise, right? Look at verse 50. He says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. That's essentially one command. Don't fear, do the opposite of that, believe. She will be well. That's a promise. Jesus is telling Jairus to do what the woman has just done, and then the outcome will be the same. Faith in him will lead to salvation. Now, this is an incredible scene. This poor man has, has just received the worst news that any parent can ever hear, and Jesus tells him, hey, don't fear, just believe. Are you kidding me right now? Like my, you've been dilly-dallying so much that my little girl has died. See, Jesus is about to work an even greater miracle. He's about to show that he has power over death, that he is undoing our worst inevitability. His kingdom is a kingdom where death doesn't exist. Death may be the worst and most inevitable thing that human beings can face, but he is undoing it. Jesus is beginning to bring death to an end. Harris, just believe and you're going to see. You believed before when you came to me. I'm asking you to believe now. You believe when you saw what I did for that woman. I'm asking you to trust me again. I am undoing death. Have faith and I will bring salvation. And by the time they get to the house, it's clear that the little girl really is dead. Verse 30, uh, 53 says they knew that she was dead. This wasn't their opinion. This was their reality inescapable, truth, truth, like death was in that house. But Jesus insists that she's not dead, she's just sleeping. This is what death is in the kingdom of God, right? <laughs> For us here in the kingdom and on our way to that kingdom, there is no death. We, when we die, we fall asleep. See, the parents and the mourners' reality was that this little girl was dead. But Jesus knows different. And it's not just like, I started to think about this, and I'm like, wow, Jesus sees things that, in a different way. That's not it at all. He sees what we see. He sees that little girl is dead, but it's not his power and authority exceeds our reality, right? It's true that she was dead, but his power and authority and his compassion in that moment exceeds what we know to be true. Death can't Hold him because he holds death. And I love how Jesus demonstrates his power over death in this moment. Ah, man, can you imagine being in, in, in that room? He acts with complete authority, but he does so in the most tender and compassionate and gentle way. He takes a little girl by the hand and he just says, Child, arise. It's like he's waking her up for school or something. <laughs> Child, time to get up. And, and just like the woman was unclean, so was a dead body. To touch a dead person was to defile yourself under the Jewish law. But Jesus, again, isn't defiled by the unclean. His cleanness 
passes to her. His life enters her death. His life transfers to her. You see how this is a picture of what Jesus does for all of us who believe in him? What Jesus is doing with this little girl is pointing forward to what he does for all of those who believe in him. When we believe in him, we go from death to life. Ephesians 2. Some of you will be familiar with this passage. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the power of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is work now in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. That is power, ultimate power and authority wielded in love and compassion. Do you see that? What Jesus does for this little girl is just the beginning because that's what he does for all of us who believe in him. He takes this little girl by the hand and he raises her from death to life. He says, child, arise. And in salvation, he takes us by the hand and raises us from death to life. I love that he tells her to get up. Child, get up. She's just sleeping. He doesn't say, rise from the dead. He just says, child, arise. She's just sleeping. Jesus spoke to the wind that obeyed him. He spoke to the demons and they obeyed him. And now he speaks and even death obeys him. Who is this man? He is incredible, both in his power and in his compassion. And church, this is our hope. Yes, and spiritually we have been raised from death to life. And one day Jesus will raise us physically from the dead. Or one day Jesus is going to tell every Christian who's died, who's fallen asleep, he's going to go to them all and say, child, arise. And guess what? We're all going to get up. Our great and sure hope is if that we die in Jesus, we will, uh, we will live again and be alive forever. One day, I am going to be in my grave. And one day, Jesus is going to come along to me and say, child, arise. And you know what? I'm going to get up. I don't know how that happens, but I know that his power makes it happen. Just like I've been sleeping. And when he tells me to get up, I will get up. Tony Morita, who's a pastor, a friend of mine, he said, put it this way. He says, when Jesus takes you by the hand, death is just sleeping. <laughs> Man, what hope we have. Why are we not out telling everyone about this? So we can trust Jesus in death because Jesus is done doing this. He is undoing death. The very worst thing that can happen to us, our inevitable worst end, Jesus is undoing it. And here's what I want to finish with. I have no idea how long I've been talking, but anyway, um, there's a couple of negative commands in this passage that Jesus gives at various points. He, he, he gives these positive commands of get up, only believe, go in peace. But there's a couple of negative commands. In verse 50, he says, do not fear. And in verse 52, he says, do not weep. Don't fear and don't weep. 
Why Jesus? Well, because in Jesus there is no fear, there is no sorrow, because he is undoing death itself. We don't have to fear death, it's just falling asleep. We don't have to weep, because death is being undone. Remember on Easter Sunday, we looked at Mary. Jesus meets her in the garden. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Don't fear. Don't weep. Don't weep. Death is being undone. One day, death is going to be undone forever. Out of memory. Out of existence. And this is what is ahead of us when we believe in Jesus. I feel like I've been quoting this verse a lot recently, but here we go again. Revelation 21 verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Do not fear, do not weep. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is our real future. Listen, I, I talk to so many people who are mourning over all the, thi- all the things that are going sickness, death, money, mental health, all kinds of things. This is the message we have for them. Death will be no more. Don't fear, don't weep. At the end of this passage, Jesus encouraged them, look, don't tell anyone what, you, what I've done here. Now, now, this is not the message he gives to us. He gives them that message because his time has not yet come. And he knows if, 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 word, if word gets out too quickly, then they're going to put him to death quicker than his plan is. But he, he tells us to go, right? He tells us to go. He resurrected this little girl from, the, from, her, from her death, and he says, don't tell anyone. What's the first thing he said to Mary when he was resurrected? He said, go and tell. So for us, the job is to go and tell. And listen, why wouldn't we? The world is mourning. The world is fearful, and we get to go and tell. I'm going to pray now, but listen, come back to our initial question. Where do we go when there's no hope? <laughs> Because the fact is, without Jesus, we are that snowboarder stuck upside down in a snowdrift, aren't we? But in the hopelessness of our situation, we can just trust in Jesus. Make him the object of our faith. He restores us. He gives us dignity. He redeems us. And we can trust him even in death. One of my favorite things about Jesus' resurrection is that for Christians, then he uses death as the way to bring us into his presence. Isn't that beautiful? Worst thing that you can imagine. And he says, that's just my, that is now the doorway for you to come into my presence. We can trust Jesus because he is undoing our worst inevitability. I hope that's a comfort to you. I hope we can all see just how amazing Jesus is. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Your, your word that, that, that Dr. Luke recorded 2,000 years ago to, to give us a glimpse into Jesus' life, to, to show us his power and authority, his compassion, the reality of who Jesus is. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you're using it to speak to us. Father, I pray that you would come for us through this this morning. The death is being undone. One day, uh, there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow. We don't have to fear and we don't have to weep anymore. Lord Jesus, for those of us who are suffering, would you, would you come close and be that comfort? Would you show us that even though your timing seems wrong, that your timing is perfect 
and you're working great miracles, and you're merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of these walked away justified? Not the proud one that says, I deserve this. Not the one that says, I'm worthy. The one who looks says, I understand I'm not worthy, and it's all because of your grace. That's amazing faith in Jesus. It's faith, sorry, that is humble. Yeah, you can help me. <laughs>